All right, Ryan, I wanted to thank you again for, for joining the show today. And I wanted to start with an understanding of, of your business. Um, I usually ask people kind of why it is they do what they do, but I, I want to understand what got you, kind of tell me a little bit about Core Matters, but then what, what was the impetus that got you doing that kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. So at Core Matters, we are a coaching and training company. What we do is we partner with small business entrepreneurs and their leadership teams and teach them how to attract, hire, and retain the best people. Uh, it's no secret that recruiting has been hard. <laughs> it seems to be getting harder. And what I found was the majority of the time, it's not because they don't know how to find people or because people aren't looking for jobs or there's no one that wants to work. It's that no one ever taught them the process, the systems that you need to use, how to actually manage Indeed. Believe it or not, Indeed is not just a place where you, it's not a, a corkboard at a coffee shop, right? Where you just post your job and you just hope for the best. Like it's actually a search engine. So SEO optimization, there's so many things that go into posting a job and getting it to get in front of the right people. And so we teach these teams how to effectively do this, compete with the big boys, the enterprises out there that have teams specifically designed for this. And we coach them in our 90-day program on how to do this. But I got started in this because I grew up in a blue-collar family. So we do a lot of work in the trades, construction, craft workers, frontline, general labor. And I grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad, you know, he was working for someone else, went and started his own company. And like all entrepreneurs, yeah. we have this belief that, hey, I'm going to work less. I'm going to make more, <laughs> right? Like that's what we go in thinking. Well, he works 12 hour days, six days a week, sometimes on seven days a week. And uh, he used to take me, I remember we'd go play golf on the weekends and then he'd take me to the, he'd take me by the shop and he, he's like, he put me to work. And I thought I was just hanging out with dad. Like this is what kids do. Well, I got older and I found out that, no, it's because he was always short-staffed, right? He always struggled with people. His entire entrepreneurial journey struggled. And as I got older, I realized that it wasn't because he was a bad boss or because he was a bad, it was a bad company to work for. It was because no one ever took him under his wing and said, this is how you recruit. This is how you onboard. This is how you retain. He's never taught that. And so everything he learned was the school of hard knocks, which is how a lot of entrepreneurs learn it. The problem is when it comes to recruiting, unlike customers, we're often competing against everybody. Mm. So what I'm saying is like, I might be an SEO company or a digital marketing agency, but I don't compete with Google. But if I'm a digital marketing agency and I'm looking for talent, I compete with Google, right? And so it's not the same thing as they take all of this customer stuff and they think, oh, we'll just apply some of that. Well, it doesn't work like that. Like you're playing against the big boys and they've got millions of dollars in budget a month. They've got hundreds of people on their team that can screen and interview and they've got perks and benefits that you're never going to compete with as a small business. And so I, I decided to do like any good son and I decided not to go into the family business. I went mm -hmm. and got a degree, went the corporate route, did that for a while, realized corporate was not my game, but it did give me something. It did give me an appreciation for process. And so many entrepreneurs, I see this all the time, they struggle 
putting in process because they feel it's going to create constraint. It's going to make it harder for them to, to be creative and do things. And what I found is the opposite is true. When you put in the process, you're freed up to create. And yeah, you give a little bit of structure to your team, but you as the entrepreneur can go do so much more. So I started my own digital agency and we served home service contractors primarily, HVAC, plumbing, electrical. And a couple of years in, I had a slew of them just want to cancel services. They said, I can't handle these leads anymore. I said, what's going on? So finally went out and I drove out to one of them and I sat down in their conference room and we started talking and, you know, it was, oh, it's not you. It's just the market, you know, and all that, that story. Mm-hmm. And when I dug into it, the root cause was they had four empty trucks sitting in their lot. They didn't have techs in them. And so we were generating leads that they couldn't service. So in their mind, we need to turn leads off because we're just wasting money. And I said, well, why don't we fix that problem? Why don't we get you some techs and trucks? And they're like, you can do that. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, let's find out. Because in my mind, even back then, it was very clear to me that recruiting is a marketing activity. It's getting the right message in front of the right people at the right time. I mean, that's marketing. And so I set out, did a little bit of research, took some of my corporate experience and said, let's go recruit. Three weeks later, they called me. They said, turn all the ads back on. We've got all trucks filled. We've got two on order. We got enough texts lined up. I don't know what you did, but can you keep doing it? So I shared that with some other clients and they were like, yes, recruiting. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Especially because I was really passionate about helping these business owners get out of the business, you know, so that they could, they could work on the business. And so that meant we had to hire frontline people. We had to hire the craft worker, the skilled technician, the frontline employee that's providing your product or service. And I just started doing that. And over time, I realized that it wasn't as simple as just line up a bunch of applicants. It became, there's so much more to it. Not only do we have to attract people, but we have to interview them and qualify them. We have to bring them in and onboard them and make sure we follow through on our promises and commitments. And then what happens if it doesn't work out? What do we do? Or what if it does work out? How do we keep them engaged and make sure that they want to stay here and not go somewhere else? And so over a couple of years, I developed what I call the core fit hiring process, which is a set of systems and tools to help small business owners attract, hire, and retain the right people. It's a, it's a powerful message because when you mentioned it saying that it's, it truly is like a marketing tool. I mean, cause, and you don't, even myself, I haven't really thought of it in that way, but when you are marketing and you're competing against bigger companies that have more and you you brought it up when they have these perks that we can't offer, right? So how is it then that we can create a, a competitive advantage and actually get people in the door when, you know, maybe we don't have the same benefits or even yeah. pay as some of the bigger places? Well, I think we need to look at why is it that people leave jobs? And you've probably heard this before. People don't leave jobs. They leave bosses. Mm. They leave leaders. They leave people. But you'd be hard pressed to find a job ad saying, this is what it's like to work for our people. It's always role requirements, benefits, pay, responsibilities, all the boring stuff. That, that's, not what people, that's not why people look for a new job. They look for a new job because they want a different boss. They want a different team to be a part of. They want a different culture to belong to. And when companies wake up and say, well, that's how I should be promoting my new opportunities, then all of a sudden the job seeker is going to take notice and the extra perks and the extra pay become irrelevant. We have clients call us all the time and say, hey, I just hired for someone. They took a 10% pay cut. 
I just hired someone who took a $4 an hour pay cut. I, just, I like, they never thought it was possible that people would take a pay cut. And what I think a lot of companies have done is they know that they don't have the best jobs. They know they don't have the best leadership team. They don't know, they know they don't have the best culture. And so what they do is they found that in order to get people to still want to work there, they have to bribe them. And they do that through better pay, better benefits. I know a lot of people in the tech sector who's like, yeah, the whole unlimited PTO is a joke. Right. It's like, they say you get it, but you don't actually get it. Like you can take a vacation, but you're working that whole vacation. Yeah. Uh, you know, the perks, I, I remember this started in the nineties with a lot of the tech firms, the original motivation behind a perk for lunch was so people would take shorter lunch breaks hmm. because I'm going to provide free lunch. And what do a lot of people do? They go down to the cafeteria, they grab lunch, they go back to their desk. Right. I keep them at the office longer. The original motivation from the employers to put in nap pods and PlayStations and those kinds of things was so that people could socialize while at work. Well, what do people do that socialize at work? They talk about work. They go back, they have an idea. They go back to their desk, they work. So a lot of those motivations were originally designed to keep people at the office longer so they get more out of them. Knowing that they didn't have the best culture, knowing that they didn't care about work-life balance, but that was what they sold it on. That's uh, very, very interesting. Um, but you talk about, so as part of your, the 90 day program, teaching people how to build that, that culture and, and identify their strengths in the, in the market, like, yeah. Or is it strictly about, you know, here, here's how we can put the job ads out there to get as many applicants as possible. Or are you training people to help how to build culture? Both, both okay. of those things. So the culture one, is really what we call your core. It's your values, your vision, your purpose, and what we call your core story. And what that is, is that's about getting really clear on who you are. Because if you're in business, I'm just, not everybody, but the majority of people that are in business, they run a decent shop, right? They've got integrity, they're honest, all of those things. Uh, there's not, I can't say everybody, but most people aren't out there to scam their customers, right? Mm -hmm. They're not there to screw their employees. The problem is most people don't know how to brag on themselves. They don't know how to get people to notice them. Uh, you, you probably see this in marketing all the time. You hire a marketing agency because they're going to be able to promote you better than you could ever promote yourself. But once we get really clear on who you are as a company, your values, which is the way you behave, your vision, which is where you're going, and your purpose, which is why you do what you do. Once we get really clear on those three things, we can put together some marketing material. We can put together a better job ad. We can put together better promotional material to get people to notice the, the really cool stuff about your organization. And I will say, at least all the clients we work with, I might be biased, but they're all awesome organizations and they all have yeah. great leaders. They just never got credit for it. So that is one element of the program. No, that's pretty cool. What do you say? Because a lot of people I talk to, or, and there's a lot of even content out there that talks about well, nobody wants to do the blue collar jobs anymore. And that's why it's hard to find people. So we got to train. Is that a true sentiment? Or do you think it's that we're just not finding the right people? So there's two things in there. One, I don't encourage people to find people. Don't go looking for them because if they're not looking for a job, you're not going to find them. What I encourage you to do instead is attract them. And when it comes to blue collar, this is where the industry has really just dropped the ball okay. in the last 20 years is 
I think there was this mentality for a long time, similar to the newspapers had in the 90s, which is the internet's not going to get us. Like, we don't have to worry about this internet thing. It's a fad. Mm -hmm. And then all those newspapers that held out, they're out of business. <laughs> and we're seeing the same thing happen in blue collar. I think too, many, too much of the industry held out and said, hey, people are always going to want to work with their hands. There's always going to be a group of people that aren't going to want to go to school. There's always going to be people that want to build the infrastructure of America. And they subscribe to this for too long. And what they didn't realize, or maybe they did and they just ignored it, like the newspapers did, was knowledge work was becoming really cool. It was really cool to all of a sudden sit in front of a computer all day and code or develop something new, not with your hands, but with your mind. That became the new fad. Now, we even have a whole generation of influencers that have come up. Now, all of a sudden, you don't even have to really spend a lot of time building something new. You've just got to be engaging. You've just got to have a great personality, a great presence, and just bring entertainment value to people. And you can become a hugely popular influencer. And I think the, the blue collar industry, all of them, they, they ignored this fact. And they kept their old ways of doing things. You know, most of them, I'm going to stereotype here, but most of them are run by boomers. Mm -hmm. And if you know baby boomers, they do not like change. They like set me on a path. I'm going to work for the same company for 30 years, retire with a pension. Like that was how they were raised. And so the industry, these companies haven't changed much to attract the new people because they're held in their old ways. And I hate to say this, but the industry as a whole has a, has a reputation of treating people poorly. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's, I, we could go into a whole bunch of different ways that they've done that, but they treat people poorly. In fact, it's one of the reasons I think healthcare is struggling so much right now. I get that. I, I don't know the inside story of what happened during the pandemic, but from the outside, if I was thinking about a career in healthcare, I saw how poorly healthcare workers were treated mm -hmm. during the pandemic, how the ones that did have jobs were so overworked and they weren't appreciated or how hospitals were bringing in traveling nurses and paying them double what they were paying their full-time nurses before they were there. And I just see all of this happening and think, oh, why would I want to go into healthcare and be treated that way? And I think that's what's happened with blue collar is for so long, they haven't changed. They haven't got the clue. They haven't adapted to technology. They haven't adopted it. And the modern workforce is like, I'm going to go do something that's safer where I'm treated better or perceived to be treated better. And it's something I get to brag about to my friends and they'll actually think is cool. Is that what prompted, I'm going to go back, take a step back and look at your personal story. Is that kind of what made you say, well, I'm not going to do the family business. I want to go do this, the college and the kind of the corporate route. I watched what my dad was going through and yeah. I saw how stressed he was. And I was like, why would I want to do this? Yeah. And, you know, I still had the entrepreneurial bug, but it was on the knowledge work side. It was you know, one of the things for me that was always important. I remember telling my high school guidance counselor this when we were doing the, what color is your parachute? And what career should you go into? And everything else I said, I really don't care. Mm -hmm. So long as I get control of my time, I get to control when I go to work, how I go to work. If I want to work, remotely or not, like that was 25 years, 30 years ago. Wow. That's what I wanted. It was control of my time. And being at a manufacturing plant for, that ran 24 seven, you were beholden to the equipment. You were beholden to someone not showing up. And so you were always tethered to that plant. It was really difficult to be uh, a, an owner and not an operator. 
uh, when you were self-employed in that sense? I was curious because I had a similar path, right? Like my my family owned a plumbing business, and it's like I know I for sure I don't want to do that. So it's like I I did the the college route and went into the, the corporate finance world, and then it's like you sit there at a cubicle all day and you realize, well, this isn't really that fun either. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I was, I was just interested in in your story and what you know. So you, you you did that, but then what made you say, okay, I'm I'm jumping out of it and I want to go back to not necessarily blue collar, but helping those type of businesses. Was it just the connection from from childhood? You know, I think it was. I was tired of the corporate route, and I realized that corporate wasn't for me. Uh, I'm not a good. I'm not good at following orders. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not. And uh, just probably why me and the military didn't decide to work together <laughs> as well, because I'm just not good at that. I always question everything, and uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur again, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And so originally. My plan was to start a consultancy and consult with small business owners. Right. Turns out small business owners don't want to hire consultants. <laughs> so they want more of the done for you. They want more of the guidance and the training so that they can go do it on their own. And that's what took a couple of years to make that shift. But I've always had a heart for the entrepreneur because, um, and now having lived it for over a decade, I, I know the ups and downs and the challenges and the struggles. And I just don't think it's fair that they have to do it. In fact, our vision at Core Matters is to create positive work environments for half a million employees by helping business owners hire and retain the right people. That's awesome. How does how does it work then if you're doing if you're putting a business through a course um, and teaching them how to do it? How does it work from like a sustainability thing for your for your business? Like, how, do you have repeat customers, or is it like? How no, does so work? a lot of times our clients will stay with us long term. Gotcha. So what'll happen is. They, so here's what I learned. You've heard of Parkinson's law. Yeah. A task will take the amount of time you give it. Yep. So there are a lot of coaches out there. They're like, oh, we have a 12 month program or, and what happens is when does the client show up and start working in month 11 when they realize the program's almost over. Mm-hmm. So I realized if I did a 90 day program and I've experimented with the six month as well, but 90 days seems to be the sweet spot where they're pushing hard enough that there's enough disruption in their business that they're forced to change but not so much disruption that they shut down and don't continue. And so that 90 day program, and then uh, we have continuity programs as well. So once you're done with the attraction side of things, being able to attract people and hire them, well, now you got the onboarding and the engagement and employee morale. And there's so many other things that we can help with. Um, Even training your managers, how to be better managers, how to better onboard people, those kinds of things. So some of our clients do keep us around longer than just the 90 days. What, what does that look like? And I guess without getting, you know, giving away all your trade secrets, but when you're talking about training an internal team to then be better managers and better, um, you know, stewards of the engagement of their, of their team. Yeah. What is that? How, how do you get them to buy into that? Uh, very patiently. Yeah. <laughs> you had about patience. Um, we've got one client right now that I'm thinking of. So they're a, a civil contractor. So they do big civil projects. And uh, they're, so one of the things that they didn't understand when we started working together was how good or bad their data really was. Like they just mm-hmm. assumed that the data is what data is and we see trends. Well, turned out their data was all over the place. Like it wasn't even consistently inaccurate. It was just inaccurate. And so we started looking at it and what we realized real early on was they were hiring almost at the rate that they were losing people. So they were mm-hmm. never able to grow. They knew they weren't able to grow, but they didn't know what the problem was. 
when we started looking at it, the first thing we identified was they were making hiring decisions based off gut. Oh, this guy says he can do the work. Let's put him to work. Oh, he can't do it out. And so one of the first things we did was help them increase the volume of people coming in. So they had more people to choose from, but then we helped them put together an objective interview process just by doing that and making better hiring decisions. Retention went up 90 day retention went up. Mm. Um, I, I forget how much, but it was significant 35, 40% of the new people were staying now. And then so now we're at a point where we're like, okay, now we've got to fix it on the other side. So we started doing collecting data, figuring out where turnover was really happening. Was it a subset of managers, a subset of foremen? Was it a subset of superintendents? And we identified that it was really all across the board. We were really hoping there'd be one bad apple and we could just go fix it up. It was really all across yeah. the board. And so we brought in a focus group and we said, okay, what's going on? Talk to me. Because what we knew was the people we were talking to in the focus group they weren't having this problem. So out of the 35 or so foremen and supers, there were like four or five that weren't having turnover problems. And there's no way that's chance that they're just happened to get the best people. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? And what we found was that what they were doing was silly, silly stuff. Like calling the, you know, talking to people by name, like knowing what their goals are, understanding who they are as a human and what they wanted to accomplish out of life. And so we start bringing in these other uh, foremen and we just start having small, short conversations with them, sharing with them the data, talking to them about the job market, educating them on the things they didn't know. And it started conversation. It started conversation after, after we were done presenting that. And they're like, I never knew this. And I thought about this. And so now we're talking about how do we do this on a regular basis, every couple of weeks, every month, just give them a little bit of information and a new tool. A little bit of information in a new tool. Uh, one of the best tools I can say for especially construction companies is call the person by their, their name, their preferred name. Um, and don't make up a nickname for them. Don't call them, hey, you, or new guy, or rookie, or whatever slang you want to use. Don't use that. I mean, have some respect for them. Most leaders don't want to be called some random, like, hey, boss. Mm. You know, it's like, no, I have a name. <laughs> um, do the same for them, like pay them the same level of respect. And it's little tools like that that can be really helpful in engaging people. Do you think that's back to like the the cultural thing of just blue collar work in general, where it's like we kind of had that rough and tough, like the nickname thing, the, you know, new guy thing, whereas, and then they just didn't buy into, we should actually treat people better and treat people, you know, with respect to try and keep them around. Yeah, I think that a lot of that's the lack of change. I think that's what that is. It's just, you know, it's really easy to be insulated from what's happening in the rest of the world when your industry is doing well. Yeah. And if you think about the last big recession was in what, 2007, eight, and that was mostly residential that ran into the issue. The rest of the trades, I mean, commercial and everything else did some, did okay through that. And then we just had like 10 years of just doing awesome. And as humans, I think we have such a short attention span <laughs> that we forget those things. Yeah. We have a short memory. And uh, so they forgot how rough it was and they just kept up the same old habits. So I do think it's cultural, but I think it's time for change in some of those areas. No, I, I agree. How, and then conversely, looking at it from maybe a perspective, hires perspective. So I'm somebody that you know wants to be in blue collar. How do I find a company that kind of embraces these 
qualities that you teach and that um, you know we're talking about here? Well, I mean that's that's one of the challenges right now. Not a lot of them have figured it out. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw a construction company, gosh, not too long ago, last year sometime. And in order to apply for a job, they had a fax number. Yeah. You know, you're a young guy, Jordan. Do you have a fax machine? No. Would you even know where to go to access a fax machine? Well, <laughs> I, well, our office still has one just in case of this, because there are still places out there that say that. I'm like, what in the world? How's that yeah. easier? What? It's crazy. And so, uh, I mean, it was just crazy. There was no application. The other thing I see a lot of times is uh, you got to create a path of least resistance for people. You know, if yeah. I'm just graduated from high school and my parents are like, hey, go get a job or <laughs> we're kicking you out or something, right? I'm sitting here motivated. What am I going to do? If I don't know what I want to do with my life and I want to get into the trades or think it's an option, I'm going to line up a bunch of employers. I'm going to say, which one is the most likely to give me a job with the least amount of effort on my part? But what are all these employers doing now? They have, oh, here's our online application. And it's 60 questions of all this random stuff that I don't remember my boss's phone, my old boss's phone number. I work for McDonald's. Like, I don't know. Uh, so it becomes a real challenge when they put all these barriers in place, thinking that they're making life easier on the, their current employees. What they're really doing is they're hindering the applicant. And it's making it really hard to jump into that. No, I, I agree. And one of the big changes that, that I made whenever kind of taking over um, a boomer run business was, mm -hmm. was this, the, that process of like, we would put ads in the newspaper and I'm like, the people that are going to be applying are not going to be reading the newspaper looking for jobs. It's like actually creating an avenue where it's like they can go to the website or find it on job boards and have an easy step-by-step -step process to even get their information to us was, was huge. Yeah. You know, it's, we do a lot of research, collect a lot of data and mo believe it or not, most job searches start out online. They do. They start online. Oh, yeah. There's no newspaper anymore. There's no coffee gram anymore. And so um, they start out online and yeah. most people, especially entry level, they don't know the job boards exist yet unless someone told them. Mm. It's not like they looked for a job in the past and like, oh, I'm just going to go back to monster. Yeah. So they, what do they do? They type in entry-level jobs into Google. And yeah. then they learn about the job boards. And if you don't have a presence online and your online presence isn't up to date, people are going to just sidestep you. I think 70 some percent, I mean, three out of four, let's say, of job seekers will actually Google the company before they apply. I mean, I'm, they probably are looking at their social media and stuff too. If you're talking yeah. about a new entry. You know? Yeah. Think about this. I, I pull you up and let's say you're a plumbing contractor. Yeah. And what's one of the first thing that's going to pop up besides your maps profile and maybe your website, it's going to be an Angie's list or a Yelp or yeah. something like that, a review website. And I see 2.7 stars on Yelp. What goes through my mind as a job seeker? <laughs> you know, well, if the customers don't like them, why the heck would I like them? That's a good point. But nobody ever takes time to think about that. They just like, I had a, we had a pest control company we worked for, with for a while. And he's like, he's like, oh, I hate Yelp. Screw the guys. So he would get in there, he start bashing people and they start updating their ratings. And he had like a 1.6 or something. And I'm like, you do realize you're just making this way harder on yourself <laughs> just because you're venting some frustration. <laughs> like, but that's what he thought was okay to do. That's funny. crazy. I, yeah. One, one mistake that I think I made early on when hiring was focusing 
and you touched on a little bit about um, the skill set or looking at someone's resume and saying, well, they have this experience. That's what's most important. And I started to transition recently to think, I, I think it's more important for, for us to find people that are culturally a fit and have the right attitude and mindset. And then we can train them, you know, on how to be a good technician. Is that something that you share with, with your clients or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, pretty much verbatim. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, even with skilled employees, uh, we don't ever require resumes. So the only exception I make to that is uh, if you have to verify some sort of certification or a certain amount of education or experience, like if you're hiring a lawyer or a paralegal, yeah, you're probably going to want a resume just to make sure that they've actually got the license or those kinds of things. But here's the thing about resumes. This is what I believe. There's two types of resumes out there. The first one is written by professional resume writers. Now, we're all familiar with that. For 200 bucks, you can go to getaresume.com and they'll build you a resume and elaborate and embellish and lie and all that other stuff, right? You can't trust that. Yeah. The other one, I don't know about you, but I mean, when I graduated, even college, uh, they didn't teach resume writing. Mm -hmm. And so the other type of resume out there is those written by people that don't know how to write resumes. And you can't trust that either because they probably miss things. There's probably things that should be on there that aren't. And if we make decisions based on a resume that's incomplete or that has inaccurate information because they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, we had a client just the other day. Um, uh, well, they're, they're in insurance and they hired this guy and they're starting to question whether or not he's the right guy now and everything else. So they brought him in. They're looking at his resume because that's what you do, right? You look at your resume and say, oh, you lied to me. You're dismissed. He said, hey, since you graduated from this on here, and the guy was just embarrassed because he had a resume writer write his resume for him. Mm. It's like, I never went to that school, but that's what they do to help people get jobs because that's wow. how resume writers, you know, val get it value. Like, we'll help you get a better job. And so we actually just encourage, you know what? Make resumes optional. Don't require them unless it's a very specialized field. You need to hire an MD a lawyer, an engineer, someone that has to prove the educational background. Other than that, you're going to teach them to do it your way anyways. Yeah. No, I, but then how do you then, um, what I'm looking for, filter through applicants to say, all right, if I'm not going to require a resume, we should probably get away from that being the basis of who we determine we're going to interview. What do you guys use as like a tool to say, all right, well, this is who we should bring in. Yeah. So we create what we call a core fit profile, which probably the closest thing that the listeners will understand is like an avatar or an ideal customer or something like that. But if you look at the way you build customer profile inside of marketing, most of the things that you would normally put on there are protected classes like mm -hmm. gender, marital status, income, all those things are protected classes. So when you're recruiting, you have to remove that stuff because you don't want those biases in there. You can get in a lot of trouble for that. So we create a core fit profile based on behaviors and motivators because I can teach somebody how to turn a wrench, yeah. but I can't teach somebody to show up to work on time. Fair? Right. But is that based on, is it software that you're providing? Like how, where are you getting that data? Oh, this isn't a software. This is a, a manual process. So, I mean, we, we can put some science into it. If you have people on your team that you already like, like these are good performers, mm -hmm. we can survey them. So we have behavioral assessments that we can do that'll get us some of this information. And then new hires would, would fill out that behavioral assessment to determine yep. their, okay. If there's a match. Yep. So that's one way to do it. The core fit profiles process we developed, it's seven factors. 
that you need to consider when hiring somebody for that role. And really what we do is we sit down and we have conversation about the role and we say, okay, you, one of your core values is uh, teamwork, let's say. Mm -hmm. Well, how would someone in this role exemplify teamwork? Let's have that conversation. What behavior would you need to see in order to say, okay, that person values teamwork? Or let's say that you know you're hiring a sales role and you need someone motivated by money. Yeah. What behavior would you need to see in a potential candidate that shows you they're motivated by money or winning? And we're going to document this in a process. And then we're going to use that information combined with any assessments that we do to develop the job ad, which is what we post on Indeed or on our website or anything else. And then from there, when we're screening people, we are looking, so there, there's four parts to the interview process. And I don't know how technical you want me to get. Feel free it's to technical turn. as you want, yeah. Stop me at any time. I geek out about this stuff. But the first stage is screening. What are we doing to screen people? Now, here's the reality. Most companies right now have more people they need to hire than they're getting applicants. Hmm. There's just, there's, there's 10.2 million open jobs in the country right now. And about 5 million people looking for work. So there's a lot more open jobs than there are applicants. So the odds that you're going to get too many people is pretty slim, right? That you're going to have to have a bunch of screenings put in place. Really what's going to happen is you're going to let people screen themselves because for every 10 people that apply, only three or four might actually respond to you. The other six okay. have moved on. They've gone on to do something else. So they weren't really interested. They thought they were whatever. For those three or four that do actually respond to you and have a conversation with you, what you really want to do is you want to look at the non-negotiables. What are the things that no matter how good they are, how much of a perfect fit they are, you can't hire them? A great example would be they're not legally authorized to work in the United States. Right? That's an easy one. Mm -hmm. Or if you need someone with an advanced degree or a special certification or license, they don't have it. You can't hire them regardless. Right? That's all you do for screening now at this point is what are the non-negotiables? Usually three to five things that you'll look at. Sometimes they're tied to values. Sometimes they're tied to the role. And then anybody that engages with you at that point, you bring them in for an interview and you let the interview process weed out the rest. Because that interview, think of it as like, it's like the dating process before you find someone you're going to marry. Yeah. Right. It, imagine that you went on a, a first date and you're like, wow, that was great. By the way, the next one is I'm going to have you take an assessment. Then I'm going to have you do a video interview. Then I'm going to sit you down and have you do a quiz. And then at the end of that, if I like that, then we can go on a second date. Nobody would ever end up on a second date with that right. person. All right. But we do that all the time with job seekers. And we're just like, hey, go through this whole rigmarole of stuff that doesn't benefit you at all. Mm -hmm but it makes my life easier. And then we wonder why no one wants to apply for our jobs. <laughs> and do you take the same mindset when you think about like onboarding, making that process simple and, and painless too? So the one way that we're able to get employers to embrace onboarding is to make it employee led. So uh -huh. what we do is we create what we call our, we, it's called the 2412 launch. It's a 12, 12 week onboarding program and it's employee led. So for the first two weeks, we're really outlining the relationship, communication, who to go to, who to talk to, all that stuff. And during that time, we're laying the ground rules for the onboarding. We're laying the ground rules for them. 
And so what's happening is we're saying, okay, when this happens, here's how I want you to go to. When this happens, here's what I want you to do. If you get stuck here, I want you to raise your hand and come see me. And it, it makes it employee-led because some employees are going to move fast and some are going to move slow. But regardless, nobody terminates in the first 90 days. So you as the employer are not allowed to terminate that person for the first 90 days. Mm -hmm. You need to successfully onboard them. Some, some studies have actually shown that it takes six months for them to reach 25% capacity, production capacity, as one of your seasoned employees. So why are we making decisions in the first three or four weeks that they can't produce and get rid of them? They're going through so much change, so much pressure, so much uncertainty. You got to account for that. I mean, they're human beings. They're not robots. Right. So, so the, the 2412 launch, is a, it's, it's a complex process to build. But once it's built, it almost runs on autopilot because the way you communicate with people throughout that process and the expectations you set on both sides really make onboarding effective. Is there a time frame that's considered like a successful employment or like, uh, like before it's considered like too quick of turnover? I like 90 days. I don't know why, but I think as just humans, we've kind of gotten into a three month rhythm, especially in business. Um, you know, I, I believe this, if somebody quits or you fire them in the first 90 days of employment, mm -hmm. you have a hiring issue. So your hiring process is broken. You made a bad decision if you terminate in the first 90 days or they leave in the first 90 days. Right. So it's not the employee's fault. It's the employer's fault. Right. If after 90 days they leave, it's a culture or a leadership issue. So it's no longer on the hiring team. It's now a culture of leadership thing. And so that's really where we draw the line between the two. I like that. Because I, I mean, I, think, I guess it's just, you know, status quo to say, oh, we're going to do a trial period of 30, 60, 90 days. And it's like, if it doesn't work, it's like, oh, well, some, you know, it, it's easy to pass the blame off on some other arbitrary something that, that caused them to leave rather than yourself or the leadership team. Well, imagine... You know, they call it employee-employer relationship. You probably heard that term. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the reasons for a lot of the federal statutes and a lot of the, the local city and state laws that are coming out is because employers have a history of treating people like garbage, like a cog in <laughs> a machine. Yeah. But if it's really a relationship, when you hire somebody, you're hiring the whole person, their hopes, their goals, their dreams, their drama, everything. <laughs> you get it all, the whole package. Even their health problems become your problem. Yeah. Right. But a lot of employers are like, screw that. I'm going to go find another person and I'm going to go find another cog for my machine. They call it employer employer relationship. Imagine what the divorce rate in this country would be like. I know it's already high, but imagine what it'd be like if it's like, hey, the first 90 days of marriage, it's trial period. <laughs> Either one of us could get out for any reason, right. 90 days. I mean, that's what you're saying. Like the, the employee employer relationship is important to the sense that, it's not, it's a little uncomfortable, right? Or I don't like something. It's like, wait a minute, what happened to investing in this for the long term? And I think that's what employers have lost sight of. So then when you talk about the long term and a part of your process is, is focused on retention, what are some tools or techniques that you provide or, or training people to do to keep their people around for the long term? Yeah. So studies have shown, and this is across all generations, across all industries, the average person is going to be with their job for 3.1 years. 
Okay. Okay. Now I get it. Some people stay a lot longer and it depends on where you're at in life. If you're going to stay longer or not, but just know on average, you're at 3.1 years. So we develop what we call a gap or a growth accelerator program. It's the piece that fills the gap between where the employee is and where they want to be over the next three years. It's actually a three-year program. It's a three-year growth accelerator program. And when we talk about growth acceleration, we're not talking necessarily professional. Mm-hmm. You see, a lot of employers are willing to invest in training, leadership training, coaching, those kinds of things, as long as there's an ROI, direct ROI to them. Yeah. I'm going to teach you how to use this new equipment. I'm going to get you licensed in this new equipment so that you can go use the new equipment. You will make more money, but I will make more money. So we both win. And what they've forgotten is that for most people, most employees, the goal of work is not work. The goal of work is to support their lifestyle. And so often that where I want to be is because I have a lifestyle that I want that I don't have access to today, right? I want the bigger house. Yeah. I want the boat. I want the second home. I want those things. Well, great. Let's talk about personally what you need to do in order to accomplish those things. And often we hear from employees are like, hey, I just wish I could buy a house. And you've probably heard interest rates are not historically high, but they're high based on what we've been used to. It's really hard to buy a house now. And so a lot of people just don't want to buy a house. Well, there are a lot of things that go into that. Having good credit, having savings, being able to afford it, having a job that can pay for it. Well, what if instead of saying, hey, we're going to just focus on you making me more money and therefore I can make you more money, we invested in financial literacy. Mm. We taught them how to do a budget and balance a checkbook and pay off their credit cards and get out of debt so they could start savings so that they could buy a home. Imagine if that was what we decided to do with our employees versus sending them to school so they can go get a certification or a license and operate new equipment. We actually made it something that they're personally driven towards. Because now what's going to happen their loyalty is going to go through the roof because what other employer is doing that for them? I, uh, I'm kind of at a loss because I was just thinking back like to our team and it's something that's like, I always thought that if we created a business where people wanted to work, like the rest of it would take care of itself, right? Like, cause if people are happy to be there, if people are, are feel like they're supported and actually with that the business itself cares about them, then they're going to be good to the customers. They're going to work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that, you know, investing money into things like they don't have an ROI, that's truly personal, but that, that gets them to a better uh, personal understanding of what they want, I think is very powerful. And, and like you said, not a lot of people are doing it. You know, you see it happen a little bit more in the enterprise space. You see these, cult- these, uh, these corporate wellness programs. Yeah. Right? Like there's no direct ROI in my team losing weight, for example collectively losing weight. Now, insurance premiums might come down. Right. So there is a little, there's an opportunity for a direct ROI. But at the end of the day, if I can reduce the number of health issues that my employees have, I reduce the number of sick days. Mm. I reduce the number of sick days. I reduce the number of times that they work without a paycheck, especially if you're hourly, right? right. So there's benefit to doing a corporate wellness program. You just have to make sure the motivation's right. Um, but financial literacy is a big one that, that we work with. Uh, another one is skills-based training. That person's going to be with you for 3.1 years. So build everything around that 3.1 year mark. 
and realize that I've got 3.1 years to invest in them for them to get an R, a personal ROI and for me to get a professional ROI. And if all three of those things happen in that three years, the odds of them leaving you are significantly low because who else is going to invest in them for the next three years? Is that the, is that a, the 3.1 years, and this is probably too broad of a statement, but is that like a kind of a metric to say, like, that should be the goal of how long we should at least keep people around? Does that make I sense? think it's a great goal. Okay. Um, we have one client that if they keep people three years, retention is like 96%. After three years, that for, until, and the company's been around 25 years, yeah. people stay. Only 6% leave after three years. No, I mean, and that's kind of why I was asking is when I think back to our team, it's like, it seems like people were either there two or 15 to 20. Yeah. So that's, it's just interesting that, 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 that average comes up. And I was just curious if you've seen in your research that, that, that number is, is actually accurate. I mean, we base a lot of the work we do around that 3.1 years. And it's the idea being, Hey, if they're going to leave, I want that employee to leave. I want you to have the mindset that when that employee leaves, they leave better than when we found them. Yeah. Uh, that, and that's, that's yeah, the thing that, to do it. and that's the thing that I think a lot of, at least uh, peers that I would say in, in the industry, it's like, if someone on our team says, Hey, I want to leave to go some do this. It's like, if that's truly what you want to do, I want to do everything I can to help you do that. I'm not going to argue for you to stay or, you know, do those things. If that's what you feel, um, you know, is going to, you know, fulfill you, then by all means do that and let me know how I can help. But I feel like it's such a taboo thing to say. And it's like some, I've had people feel like that means I'm pushing them away. Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, it's a tricky balance there. It is is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, You know, but one of the things that we do, even with our long-term clients is we tell them that there is a point where we graduate them. Yeah. You know, we, we have some consulting clients that'll come and they'll say, I want this. And it's a big project. You know, they want us to build out the entire recruiting department, put together all the processes, systems, marketing, everything. And we'll say, okay, that's fine, but it's a two-year engagement or a three-year engagement. And they're mm-hmm. like, is it, you can get it all done by then? Or sometimes it's a 12-month engagement. I'm like, we can get it all done by then. But even if we don't, I don't want you to feel like we're milking it. Like we're keeping things going. Like, I want you to know that there is a point where we're going to celebrate you graduating and taking this over on your own. Now we get two years in and all of a sudden they're like, I don't want you to go anywhere. Like, (laughs) great, let's have that conversation. But now we're having that conversation, not a, oh, there's this big long-term commitment. Uh, You know, I don't want anyone on my team to leave after three years. Right. But it's, it's likely to happen with somebody. And if I invest in them and I pour into them and I commit to their success during that three-year periods, I'm going to be much more likely to keep them long-term than if I don't. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I guess it's what, what is some of the common struggles that, and I guess if a client's reaching out to you, they're already to a point where they recognize they have a little bit of a gap, but what are some of the hesitancies of business owners to, to start to invest in this sort of thing? Because it seems like it's so self-explanatory, but I could see where like we talked about the no ROI, like, is that, is that the big thing? It's time. Okay. Time is the number one objection we get. I don't have the time. My team doesn't have the time. Uh, a lot of times we talk to the owners because we, the owners have to be in our program. We have yeah. to be communicating, connecting with the owners because there's such a cultural element to this. And we'll talk to the owners and they're like, I don't have time. I'm like, why don't I have time? Oh, I got to run. I got to run to the shop today. I got to do inventory day. I got to do bookkeeping day. I'm like, whoa, you have people to do all that. He's like, yeah, but I don't trust them. Mm. So I'm like, well, there's the problem. 
Correct. Let's instead of worrying about hiring amazing people that you can trust, let's create an excellent process that you can trust and hire good people to run the process. And that's the shift that I want people to make is I would take a good person and an excellent process over an excellent person and a good process any day. You have like, um, I keep taking notes because you have all these cool quotes that I want to, <laughs> okay. I'm going to steal cool. from myself. No, I like it. Love um, it. So what's something that, you know, outside of reaching out to you, what is something that a listener can take away, whether they be, you know, a manager or somebody in leadership to help kind of create that culture or understanding their team a little bit better, like starting tomorrow. This is going to sound so stupid, but <laughs> um, ask them, ask your team. Hey, I, I, I want to, you know, hey, hey, Jordan, I know we've worked together for a while and, you know, I've been remiss and getting to know you a little bit better. And can I go out to lunch? I got some questions for you. I'd love to just know what your goals are, what your dreams are. You know, what can I do better to serve you as a leader? Hmm. And then just listen. Don't defend yourself. Don't interrupt. Just listen. And when they get comfortable talking to you, they are going to tell you things that you never even thought were in the realm of possibilities. Yeah. I know. And it sounds so silly. It's like, well, I listen to people all the time. I'm like, but do you? <laughs> um, well, there's a, there's a, um, a framework around like, there's almost like a, a situation where someone has to actually get to that comfortable place to open up, right? Like it's not going to be in the office in front of everybody else. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we found that with like group meetings. It's like, well, during, during a team meeting, someone's actually going to voice their concerns or their true, you know, um, desires or complaint. So it's like you have to create those opportunities for some one-on-one -on -one communication. Absolutely. But yeah, just ask them. You know, there's a, there's a great book out called The Dream Manager by Matthew Kelly. Uh, and it's a, it's a business fable. I love business fables. And uh, it's a story about a janitorial company who's struggling with turnover and low profit margins and everything else. And they get introduced to this concept of a dream manager. And uh, I mean, the, the whole purpose of this, this role is to help people pursue and achieve their dreams. That's and, and when they did it, all of a sudden, all this cool stuff started happening <laughs> because nobody else is doing that. So imagine that I work for that and I just got done with the dream manager and I get to celebrate because I just paid off my car. And that was my dream was to be out of debt. Guess who I'm going to tell? Right. Freaking everybody <laughs> how awesome my employer is and what they helped me accomplish. That's a I'm going to get the book because that's a really cool example. <laughs> now, but what's, yeah. and then uh, what's the best way people can find you or, you know, uh, see what you're, what you're, what's going on in, in your world? Yeah. So corematters.com is the website. If you want to look me up on LinkedIn, I'm there as well. Ryan England, E-N-G-L-I-N. Uh, but Core Matters, that, our website has a ton of content, educational content. We just launched a new scorecard. It's a two minute quiz that you take is 14 questions. And at the end, it spits out a report and tells you out of the seven areas that we focus on in our business, how you're grading uh, or how you're scoring in each of those areas. And then it gives you some customized recommendations on things you can do to actually improve in those areas. And uh, you can get access to that directly on our website as well. Awesome, man. Hey, I can't thank you enough. You gave a lot of um, really good insights, really good information. Um, and I uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you.